Hi, I'm Amber and welcome to Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Stephen Hussey. He is a chiropractor, he's a speaker, and he is the author of this book, Understanding the Heart, which we're going to discuss. Super excited about that. And he is also a health coach. And I'll, you have some other stuff I want you to talk about. So can we stop, start with talking about your background and some in both professional and your health background? And by the way, welcome, Steve. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I mean, my whole interest in, in uh, health in general was, you know, um, created by my, my health history when I was a kid. And, um, and uh, I had a lot of inflammatory conditions uh, when I was a kid, everything from chronic hives to asthma to um, uh, IBS and, and all kinds of things, allergies, and ultimately ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes when I was nine years old. And uh, so my body was so inflamed that it got confused and attacked itself, or at least a part of itself. And now I no longer make, make insulin. And so now I'm, I'm type one diabetic um, and I have been for 25 years. And so that, you know, through my parents and I into Western medicine, we were relying on them to to keep me healthy. And, uh, and it, it helped me manage, I guess, the conditions that I had, um, but it never told me why I had them. And so as I grew up, I started becoming more curious about why I had these conditions and, and um, why I was always told that I was predisposed to, to heart disease as a type one diabetic. Um, I really started digging in uh, and found that the way I live my life had a direct um, effect on how I could manage these conditions. And I'm happy to say that all those conditions are gone aside from type one diabetes, which is kind of collateral damage from, from all that. Um, but all the allergies and all the inflammatory stuff is totally gone now um, because of what I've done. And so now uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, figuring out what causes heart disease, understanding the heart um, and trying to um, mitigate my, my, uh, my risk for that even though um, sometimes I've been unsuccessful. Um, I've tried to understand a lot of things, but I'm not as successful as I'd like to be because I think we totally misunderstood this organ. And, uh, and I think that there's a lot of conversation that needs to be had around it. So um, at some point I decided, I started sharing the information that I had about the heart that I'd come across uh, and people seem to like it. So I wrote a book about it and I just put it all down in one place and, and, uh, and, um, people can now can access that. And so that's kind of how I got to where I am. That's awesome. I absolutely love that. I, I think it is so incredibly important for just not your typical physicians or whatever to talk about these things, but, but, you know, outside of, of that particular field too. And this book, I mean, it's got so much information and some of this, I haven't got through the whole book, obviously, because I'm a little tag here, but there's so much good stuff in here and stuff that, I mean, I've studied a lot about the heart. I've, you know, had multiple classes. I was at first training to be a nurse and all this other stuff, love biology, all that. And there was stuff in here. I'm like going, what, what? What? So I think this is exciting. I can't wait to talk about this, but let's, let's talk just a little bit about the type one diabetes. Um, I hear a lot about this. Um, what was it like for you when you found out that you were type one diabetic? How did that affect your life? Yeah, I was, I was nine years old and I didn't really know what was going on exactly. Um, I remember sitting there and like my doctor trying to explain to me in nine-year-old terms, 
you know, what was going on in my body. And I don't remember much about the conversation. I, I just remember him trying to explain it to me. And then, um, you know, I turned and my mom was sitting next to me. I turned and I saw that she was crying and I was like, oh, this, I guess this is a serious thing. I don't know. And so then I was hospitalized by the afternoon. They, they told me to go straight to the hospital pretty much. Um, and it just, it, you know, it totally transformed um, my life because now my life was involved or involved like, you know, watching um, or counting what I ate, not necessarily watching what I ate. They didn't tell me to watch what I ate. They just told me to count everything I ate and then giving injections and checking my blood sugar often. Um, and so this was like the mid nineties um, before we had, you know, um, uh, uh, before insulin pumps were popular and all the different technologies we have today. So and CGMs and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, it changed because all of a sudden I had to, you know, pay attention to what I was eating. Not that they were telling me to eat healthy, but I just had to count the carbohydrates, you know, and if, and I remember getting a little booklet that, um, uh, that basically went through every fast food item you could ever order from any restaurant and told me the amount of carbohydrates in it, you know, so it wasn't about eat healthy. It was count the carbohydrates, you know, so that, that was definite, a big shift. And then, you know, I, I guess as a kid, you kind of felt like, um, why this happened to me, this isn't fair you know, my, my friends can eat whatever they want and not have to worry about it. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a struggle sometimes because, you know, in high school, I was just a defiant teenager and I did not take care of myself. And my A1C was probably 11.5 at one point. Um, so really high. And, uh, and my parents were just concerned and they would always ask me when I came home, like, what's your blood sugar been today? And, and at some point that got annoying to me and I just resisted and resisted and resisted. And it wasn't until I took it on myself and started getting curious about things that I really started taking care of it. And, but that probably wasn't until college. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it was definitely shifted my life a lot, but in the end, it, it's the reason why I'm into the things I'm in right now. It's the reason that I am the, uh, where I am. Um, I never would have, you know, pursued any sort of medical degree if it hadn't been for um, this happening to me. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a, it, it's kind of a positive, take the positive out of the negative. And, and, uh, ultimately it's, it's, I guess where I'm, why I'm where I'm at today. So, and, and I like where I'm at today. So it's a good thing. That's awesome. That is really good. So I hear so many people who have diabetes, uh, the type one specifically where they're like, Oh, well, you know, my pancreas doesn't work anymore anyway. So I'll just eat what I want and I'll just up my insulin. What do you say to that? I'd say it's this, it's the same uh, type of thinking that gets people to type two diabetes, you know? Um, so just eat whatever you want and your body will deal with that for a time, but eventually it will not be able to, and you'll be type two diabetic, except, you know, with type one um, that happens pretty much immediately if you're not giving insulin. Right. So I don't know that I've ever heard of it specifically, but I do think that a type one diabetic could become type two diabetic as well, because in type one, your, your body is not making insulin, but you're giving it, um, through injections or, or however, through a pump or whatever. Um, but you're still insulin, insulin sensitive, you know, like when you're a kid, just like everybody else. Um, however, if I was to eat a type of diet that would make me insulin resistant, I'd become insulin resistant to the insulin I'm giving myself, just like someone else would become insulin resistant to the insulin they're creating themselves. And so I think the type ones could become type two diabetics as well. Um, I've never met anybody that has, but I don't necessarily, um, I don't work with a lot of type one diabetics, but I do work with some, um, but they're usually kids. Um, so 
so that that kind of frustrates me because the evidence is pretty um pretty resound i guess in suggesting that a low carb diet or watching what you eat is the best way to manage type one you know you can try and increase insulin levels or, or mess with insulin all day long uh you want to make it easier for yourself by not having processed foods in general um but especially processed carbohydrates and it's just a shame to me that you know as when I was a kid, I wasn't told anything about changing my diet. Um, and, and even now dietitians say that, you know, diabetics should have 60% of their carbohydrate or their mm. calories from carbohydrates. Um, and it's just, it, it's crazy to me. Um, literally there's this condition called diabetes, whether it's type one or type two, where you become intolerant to carbohydrates and they want 60% of your calories to come from carbohydrates. It's just, it's crazy to me. I agree. And, and that's what I find really frustrating. And it makes me really sad. And there have been, been some like post diabetic type posts that, that I've made. And there's been some type ones who come back at me and say, um, you don't know what you're talking about because uh, I, I can't produce insulin. I will always have to be on it. Well, yes, you're right. Absolutely. But you can still improve your situation. You maybe you can reduce the amount of insulin needed, but the more yeah. carbs and processed foods you eat, the more you're going to have to up your insulin. And like you said, who knows what kind of problems that's going to cause later on, like type two. I mean, yeah, yeah. And you know, like when we when we test for fasting insulin on a blood test, which is like the best one of the best indicators of um, whether or not someone's metabolically healthy or not, we want a low number. We want you know you know, below 10 for sure, but ideally below four. And, um, and so type ones need to think about that. Like if we, if we want a fasting insulin number on a person without type one diabetes to be low, then we need to eat in a way that creates, or that, that allows us to use the least amount of insulin, because that's what we want to see in normal people. So we want to see that in ourselves too. Um, that makes the most sense. And it's not like, it's not like we type ones are, are, are special, uh, or anything like that. We, we operate the same way that someone else does. We just don't make insulin inside us. We have to inject it outside. Um, so we want to do the same. We want to be the same way uh, as people who don't have type one diabetes, as far as insulin levels go and, and how much we use. Yeah. I, it just, it makes so much common sense to me, mm -hmm. but it's almost, well, th this is a fact. People don't want to do the work. They don't want to have to change. They don't want to have to face that. Maybe they have some more work to do kind of thing. And they just want to rely on a medication or a shot or insulin or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. uh, that's really sad, especially in our current condition, you know, because if we were working more on our underlying issues and getting things under control, we wouldn't be in the, the problem we, we have right now, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, that, that is so frustrating to me. Okay, let me ask one more question before we start digging a little bit more into uh, the understanding the heart. Um, mm -hmm. Why did you specifically want to be a chiropractor? Um, well, so I was uh, coming out of college and I had a really good relationship with my pediatric endocrinologist, the doctor that I saw for type 1 diabetes throughout my entire childhood. He was a really great um, doctor and he really helped me understand um, uh, my disease even though I was a defiant teenager and didn't really take care of it. And, and, um, but he just related well to me. And so that inspired me to become some, some sort of um, uh, medical provider. Um, but I didn't necessarily want to be a medical doctor um, because I also felt like 
uh, at that point, especially like, as I went through college, I learned a lot and I learned that, you know, maybe even though he was a great guy and a good doctor, he didn't necessarily have the best tools to help me understand how best to control the condition I had. Um, and so I was just, as I looked into that and I asked him about things, I just felt like I wasn't going to get what I wanted out of medical school. Um, and so I'd been to chiropractors my whole life. My parents took me when I was younger. I started um, uh, like when I was in high school and stuff. And then I started uh, when I was going to college, when I was out on my own. And so I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'll do that, you know? And so I applied and, and I had no idea, you know, that there was this big um, philosophical debate among chiropractors about evidence-based versus not evidence-based versus, you know, more philosophy. I, was, I had no idea. I just kind of went to a school that uh, was close to where my girlfriend was going to school. Um, and so, you know, it was only later that I found out all the, the differences in chiropractic and everything. And, um, and so, you know, I thought I was going to learn everything about why I got sick and, and everything I needed to know about the body. And I got a really great medical education. Um, and, uh, but I didn't learn that stuff and, and, uh, I didn't learn and I wouldn't have learned that in medical school either. Um, because we were taught the exact same things that medical school, uh, medical school students are taught. So I realized that, you know, learning about the body doesn't tell you why we're getting sick, um, or why these things happen. So that kind of, um, you know, inspired me to, to keep digging and keep looking. And what I found is completely opposite of what they would teach in any type of medical school, uh, in some, on some instances. Um, especially on the heart. And so um, I'm glad that I'm, my chiropractic education taught me more to look outside the box a little bit and look for more what creates health rather than how do we, how do we fight off disease? How do we prevent it in the first place, you know? Um, but it still wasn't everything. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was kind of how I got to chiropractic. It wasn't like, oh, I always wanted to be a chiropractor. It was just like, it was just kind of what happened and where, and where, where things led me, you know? Awesome. And you also have a master's. What, what was that specifically in? Yeah, that's in um, human nutrition and functional medicine. And so yeah. I, I'll admit that I, I, I did that because I was, I still didn't think that I knew what caused disease and everything. And so after my chiropractic degree, I got a master's in, in human nutrition and functional medicine. I thought that would give me the answers. And, and it definitely taught me a lot of different things that were uh, different than what I had learned in any schooling before that, but it still didn't give me the answers um, that I was looking for. And maybe I was just looking for something that wasn't there. I don't know. Um, but I think that my, my issue at that point was that I thought that I was going to get the answers through formal education. And that was just not the case. And I, I learned that eventually that I was never going to get the answers to what causes um, disease or what creates health from a, you know, formal university education of any sort. Uh, and so I had to start looking at myself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot, a lot. Okay, so let's talk some stuff that's in your book. Let's start talking about that. Okay, let's see. I, give me just a little bit of back, background on the book itself. Like as an author, I know what it takes to write a book. Tell me how long of a process this, was this for you and how did it go? Tell me about your experience of actually writing a book. I know you've written another book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the experience of writing books on, you know, health. Yeah. So the first book, my first book is called the health evolution. And that one, um, 
you know, that was kind of, I guess, years in the making, even though I didn't know it was in the making, you know, I, I looked up all this stuff and I learned all this stuff. And then eventually I just kind of thought of a way to put it down. And so I, I wrote that book within like two months, but then I spent like a year and a half editing and, and changing it or whatever and adding to it. Um, this one, since I'd already written that first one, this one was, um, it was a bit easier in the sense that I, I knew uh, what to do this time as far as, as writing it down, but it was harder in the sense that it hadn't been years in the making. Um, I had, I had done a lot of research on the heart and I found a lot of things, but I never thought that I was ever going to put it down in, in, in one place. And so I had to gather all these materials first. And so, um, that took probably about six months or so, and, and I'm still gathering materials. I can still probably add to it now as I gain more information, but, um, but then I, I wrote that, um, in about six or eight months, um, I wrote this one and, uh, and, you know, it, it turned out to be way longer than I thought it was going to be, but, um, but, and I, and I kept adding more to it as I, as I came across things that, um, that, you know, helped me make my point and, and, and more experiences that I had and everything. But the writing process to me, I feel like came like the actual writing. Um, I feel like came pretty easy. It was just a matter of sitting, motivating myself to sit down and do it. That's, that was the hard part for me, but uh, the writing itself, like if I get, you know, in a spot where I'm not distracted and I have everything in front of me, I can, I can do it pretty good. Um, and, and it comes pretty easy. Then the, but the, the, the part of, of writing that I was not anticipating was, especially after the first book was like, okay, I have this manuscript. Now what do I do with it? I have no idea what to do. Um, and I was like, do I, do I get a publisher? Do I self-publish? Is that even possible to self-publish? Like, how, can I afford that? I think mean, I have no, I had no idea what to do. So after I wrote the first book, it was probably a year of it just sitting there while I tried to figure out what to do with it. Um, and so I guess that was a waste of time, but you know, um, you know, we live and we learn. Whereas this one, I knew exactly what I was going to do with it. And it was like, it was either, you know, find a publisher or go directly to self-publishing. And I already done that before. So that's what I did, though. I have a publisher who's interested now. So I'm, I'm working through that, that process um, to see if I want to do that. Um, but yeah, th there's, there's so much more to it than I thought. It wasn't just writing. It was, you know, I had to find an editor that I could afford and that was good enough. And, and, um, and there was, uh, you know, all the, the formatting of the book and um, all the different, you know, making an index and all the stuff that you just don't think about. It was just, I liked the idea part of it and, and writing down the information and everything. And then there's all this, this, um, I don't know what, what the word is, but like extra stuff that you have to worry about, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and uh, that wasn't as enjoyable for me, but, um, but in the end, I think it, it, I'm proud of it, you know, obviously. And, uh, and uh, all that work you do, I think, becomes rewarding. So, um, I'll probably write more one day, but we'll see. Yeah. It's a lot of work and people don't really understand because you do think, Oh, I'm just going to sit down and write. Yeah. It'll take a little time, but I, I can do that part. <laughs> oh, there's way, way, way more to it. And especially if you're going to self-publish, you don't have somebody else yeah. doing that, but you have all of the control, all of right. the, you know, input where if you go with a big publisher, <laughs> They can tell you, take out something, add something in. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, it's, it's hard when you give up control like that. So yeah, definitely. yeah, it is definitely a lot more to it than people realize. They think, ah, you can, anybody can write a book. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
Yikes. Okay, so when you started the book, you go into kind of like the origin of the, of the heart, how it kind of like came about from like mm-hmm. a, a nothing to like all the evolutionary kind of things to go across. Where yeah. in the world did you come across that? That is so in-depth and like it just kind of blew me away because I mean, I would have never expected a heart book to start like that. Yeah. So, well, oh. I felt like to understand disease in general, we have to look at where we came from. Um, and, you know, regardless of what people believe, whether they believe in, you know, some sort of religion or God or whatever, or, you know, I think I tend to be more along the lines of evolution and we came from, um, you know, we, we evolved from other uh, beings before us. Um, but, it, you know, I think that it's important to understand where we came from um, because that's going to tell us about the things that may be different now that are causing disease that we didn't have before. Uh, so I think that's really important. And so I wanted to start the book by, you know, my interpretation of where we came from, which is an evolutionary approach. Um, so I, I take things all the way back to, you know, the origins of life, the first, um, you know, the first cells that started using oxygen and then multicellular organisms, the first ones of those. And because there's things that happened during that evolutionary past that I think they clue us into why we have disease now, especially heart disease. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I like to walk readers through that so that we can get a really good base understanding of the concepts I talk about later. Um, but uh, as far as like, you know, the origins or the evolution of the origins of the heart, um, I came across that, um, you know, in, in the book, readers will see that, you know, I am of the opinion that the heart is not the main mover of blood, the blood. Um, that was my and, next question. Go ahead, yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so in researching that, and because the heart is more, one of the, one of the roles of the heart, since it's not the movement of the blood, is to actually vortex, which means to like spiral the blood um, uh, as it goes through the heart. And there's a reason for that. But um, the origins of how the heart, the heart formed um, throughout evolution um, uh, kind of clue us into why or how it's able to vortex the blood as it goes through. And so, in, you know, once I understood that the heart wasn't a, uh, pressure propulsion pump that forcefully pumps blood throughout the body, but it's more of a, a vortex that spirals the blood as it moves through it um, for a reason. Uh, then you can look into what are the origins? How did the heart form in a way so that it could do that? Um, and so uh, it's pretty fascinating um, when you look at that. And there's a few papers by um, uh, a guy named Francisco Torrent Quasp, if people want to look into it. Um, that, that kind of highlight the origins of how the heart basically started out like in this worm-like structure. Um, and then over years, as we got into higher and higher evolved animals, um, it, it became more convoluted Then it had chambers, then it was twisted around itself. And then um, it eventually ended up like it is today um, uh, for most large mammals, it's, it's pretty similar. Um, and so, but it's fascinating because that, that evolution of the heart kind of tells us um, about where, how, or how we're, or why we're getting so much heart disease today. Um, and, and, and because it, it tells us what the heart needed to, or what evolutionary pressures, um, were present that created that, um, or that allowed the heart to evolve that way. And so if we think about those pressures and if they're still there in today's society, which lots of them, many of them are not, then we understand why we have uh, heart disease, specifically heart failure in that sense. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty fascinating. And I've always found that looking back like that, it's what gives me the answers about what or why we're seeing what we're seeing today. 
I, I found that very fascinating. I'm reading, I'm like, whoa, this is like intense stuff here. It was very cool, something I had never really read before. So that was very, very interesting to me. Okay, so we always think of the heart as the pump, bonk, 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 and it pumps mm -hmm. through your body, right? The heart's the pump. And you're saying that, that there's evidence to show that that may not be exactly what it is, that it's the vortex. Explain that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? Like, how does that process work? Yeah, um, there's actually quite a bit of evidence suggesting that it's not a pressure propulsion pump. So a pressure propulsion pump is a pump that um, we think of as like, you know, there's stagnant water, like in a reservoir or a lake or something. And that water, or that pump um, sucks the water forcefully away from there and it pumps it off somewhere else forcefully. Um, a lot of energy required in that. Um, and, uh, and that's not what the heart does. Um, so the heart is actually placed in the middle of the arteries and veins, you know, kind of separates the two. Um, and it's there and the blood is actually already flowing. And so to understand that, we have to understand um, what's called uh, fourth phase water in the body, which is not it's not a, uh, it's not like you, fourth phase water is always there. It's just that water in general has the ability to hold energy and it, it can become fourth phase water. Um, it can structure itself in a way. And so um, when, um, and this is all information that comes out of uh, um, Gerald Pollock's lab at University of Washington um, and his work with water and before him, Gilbert Lang. Um, and so they've shown that if you have water next to a hydrophilic surface, a, a surface that loves water. It's, it's um, rather than hydrophobic, like fat, it's hydrophobic. Um, uh, but if it's next to a hydrophilic surface and you have energy applied to the system, radiant energy, then the water next to that hydrophilic surface will structure itself. It'll actually cleave a hydrogen and an oxygen and it will structure itself in these planar-like um, uh, situation, a, a planar-like uh, like, like I, I think of like Fink's panels lined up each other on, on the side of, of a hydrophilic surface. And the arteries are actually hydrophilic surfaces and the blood is actually about half water. Um, and so this phenomenon happens in our arteries. And one of the things that it does, um, this, this structured water on the lining of the arteries is that it actually creates a energy gradient that propels uh, or creates motion in fluid. And they've done this over and over again in his lab. They put a hydrophilic tube in water. Um, they've actually proven that it happens in um, animals. Um, uh, recently, uh, last year, they proved that it happens in animals. And so the blood is moving more or less on its own through this, these mechanisms that are happening. And so, um, so then um, we have to question, well, why is the heart there? You know, if it's not moving the blood, if that's happening on its own, um, then why is it there? Now the heart does do a little bit of pumping, but no more pumping. That's, that's enough to, you know, move the blood through the heart as it's there. There's no way it could create enough force to move the blood throughout the entire body. That would be impossible based on the size it is. Um, and, uh, and there's also like one way valves in the veins that, that can prevent flow from coming backward and stuff and movement of the muscles that can help the blood flow a little bit. But the main way that it flows is this, this formation of structured water on the arteries. Um, that helps create this energy gradient that moves the blood. Um, and they've shown that, you know, there's been experiments where um, um, they've euthanized animals and the blood continues to flow for two hours after, after the, the animal is gone. Um, and uh, that's what they did. And uh, most recently um, they proved that the fourth phase water is on the lining of a chick embryo and they, they stopped the heart and the blood continued to flow. 
Um, and if they put radiant energy on it, it continues to flow even more. So this, this mechanism does happen. Mm. We, we, it's not theory anymore. We've seen it actually happening. And so then why is the heart there? So the heart's there for two reasons, in my opinion. One is to vortex the blood, like we talked about, um, because one of the ways water can, can attain energy in multiple ways. One is direct application of radiant energy, which we get naturally from the earth or from the sun or from contact with other humans. You know, we all let off on an electromagnetic field and, and that's radiant energy for, for our bodies. Um, but also vortexing, swirling of water in the presence of oxygen will also energize it, uh, so to speak. And so this happens as water is flowing through, you know, deep springs in the earth. Um, it gets structured by the earth and by the vortexing or like when water is gushing over like a, um, uh, a rock in a stream, like you see the white water, that's the water getting structured in the presence of oxygen. It's, it's vortexing. It's getting kind of like mixed up, bundled up. Hmm. Um, and so, and so that's what the heart is doing. So in a way, the heart is responsible for the movement of the blood because it's vortexing the blood so that it can be energized. So when it gets into the arteries, it can form that fourth phase water and keep the blood moving. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And so it's fascinating. Yeah. And so, but, but that just totally shifts our understanding of why the heart's there and what it does. And so, and the reason, and the thing that solidifies this for me is the research on infrared saunas. Um, and heart failure. So heart failure is when the heart is not pumping the way that it should be, right? It's failing. Mm. And so we get fluid buildup because the, 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 uh, the blood's not moving around the body like it should be. The fluid in general is not moving around like it should be. And so we get edema in our feet and we get, you know, uh, the heart gets bigger because it's having to, you know, pump more forcefully than it's supposed to. And um, if we put those people in infrared saunas, which infrared light is the most absorbable radiant energy by water, we put those people, heart failure patients in um, infrared saunas, they see drastic improvements. Um, I don't understand why there's not infrared saunas in every you know, uh, cardiac rehab center in the world um, because of the research on this. And, um, and it's because that infrared light is creating structured water in the arteries, which is helping move the blood on its own, which is taking pressure off of the heart. Um, and I've, I've worked with um, clients before, many clients now, um, but one in particular told me that she was a heart failure patient and, uh, and she told me that she started using the sauna. And the last time she went for, to get, you know, her checkup with her doctor, her, the size of her heart, which in heart failure, it, it, the size of the heart gets bigger, had decreased 50%. And so, Whoa. yeah. And so it, it, that's what proves it to me that this is what's going on. This is the mechanism what's happening. Cause when we energize the water and the blood through infrared sauna, um, then that's the result we see, but that's the, that's one part. The other, the other role of the heart is, um, is actually to stop the flow of blood, which sounds crazy. It's totally opposite of what we think, but you know, the, the demand of blood when we exercise comes from the, or the, uh, uh, I guess the, the, the demand of blood, um, when we exercise, um, increases. Um, and so that's, that's more because of tissue demand. It's not because the heart's pumping faster or anything like that. It's because the tissues are demanding more blood. And so they're moving toward the tissues quicker. Um, and if we didn't have something there in the middle between the arteries and the veins, then when we went for a run or whatever, then all of our blood would end up on the arterial side in the tissues mm. and the venous side would collapse. There'd be, no, there wouldn't be enough pressure there to, to maintain the, the openness of the veins. 
And so there's lots of interesting studies done in athletes um, or during exercise that show that the, the heart is actually slowing the flow of blood. Um, because if it wasn't, then we would get that situation where all the blood ends up in the arterial side. Um, and, you know, there's all these, it's been observed that like endurance athletes and um, like soccer players and, and runners and things like that um, have enlarged hearts, but they're just not like pathologically enlarged, but they're just mm -hmm. bigger and stronger. Mm -hmm. And they're not bigger and stronger because they're pumping more blood. They're bigger and stronger because they're, they're having to stop more flow of blood. Um, and so they, and they've studied the heart at, at the, um, the place where the blood flows into the, the um, uh, atrial, atrium and the ventricles. Um, that, those are the spots that are the biggest because that's where it's having to catch that, that fast flowing blood coming in. It's having to slow it down. Um, so it's really fascinating um, to, to totally flip things on their head and realize that we've totally misunderstood the function of this organ. Not to mention all the stuff about heart disease and cholesterol and all that kind of stuff, but but the very function, the fundamental function of the heart, we've misunderstood, and it just goes to show or explains to me why heart failure is so common. Why heart disease is the number one killer in the United States because we don't even understand it. That is so incredibly fascinating and mind blowing to tell you the truth. Absolutely mm -hmm. mind blowing. Definitely blew um, my mind when I first learned it. I can imagine. Okay, so. You've learned all this, and this is obviously not something that we're taught about in biology or physiology or anything like that, right? It's, it's not, or, or at least it wasn't when I yeah. was going through school. So there's this big thing about sciences settled, and especially right now, it's all about science, science, it's settled, that is the law, whatever. What is your opinion about settled science after knowing this? And believing something else and being taught something else, do you believe that science does change? That it's never Definitely. settled? Definitely. And I, I, would, I would caution people or I would advise people to, um, to never think that we have things figured out. You know, never. Uh, there, there could always be something else that comes along that disproves. And the issue is, the issue is that stuff like that's coming along all the time. And that people are resistant to it. Um, and for whatever reason, it could be because they spent their whole career and their whole career is based on this idea. And now this new idea comes along. Of course, they're going to resist it. You know, that's their livelihood, uh, their income, everything, um, which is why uh, that could be why it could be that they they actually truly scientifically just you know, believe it. You know, they think there's something wrong with that science. And but we have to get away from this idea that we know because we don't. And I'll sit here and be the first to tell you that I don't know if the things that I've come across are true because I knew something before and then I learned this and who knows what else I'll learn, you know? And, exactly. And that can be really frustrating for people because then they're like, well, what do we do then? You know, but I just think that, I think that it's, it's really um, egotistical um, of humans in general to think that we can fully understand something as complex as the human body or, or, you know, just biology in general, whether it's, you know, the natural world biology or, or human biology or whatever. And so I think that we need to start approaching science with a degree of humility um, and not, and not think that, you know, since we made this discovery that we know it all, or we know the answer, um, all these things can help maybe guide us uh, into, into what, a better life may look like um, as far as science goes. It could help guide us, 
but it's never going to be the answer and it's never going to be settled. It's never going to be the truth forever, I don't think. Um, and so I think that we just need to, we need to start looking at science in that way and, and stop thinking that, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies are the worst um, as far as not understanding this because here they are trying to not only, um, not only pretending that they understand all the complexities of a, of a complex biological ecosystem that is the human body, but they're trying to manipulate it. Um, and they're trying to uh, very, I think, egotistically manipulate it. Like, like they can change one biochemical pathway and think that that's the answer to our problems or, or, that, or that that single um, uh, biomarker or, or metabolite or whatever it may be is, is, the, is the answer um, or the, I guess, the, the cause of a problem. You know, it just, it makes no sense to me whatsoever given you know, the laws of mathematics uh, in general and the laws of the universe. Like there's so many, there's so much complexity to it and we're no different. I could not agree with you more on that. I'm so glad you said that. And I, I, it, it does frustrate me when I hear, you know, oh, the science is settled, period, bam, done not able to be questioned. That raises a red flag for me because it should always be questioned. It should always be trying to disprove it. That is what science is. Exactly. You, you should have to, you know, just keep disproving it, trying to, trying to. And when you can't, you can't, you can't, then you're like, mm, I'm on, on to something. So I, I do find that very, very frustrating. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Um, how would you suggest that heart disease be assessed. Like we, we tend to use, you know, cholesterol or whatever. Oh my gosh, you're gonna die because your cholesterol is high. How would you go about assessing heart disease? Yeah, I, um, the two, I guess the, like I wrote this book and I didn't write this book to like say, oh, cardiologists and cardiac researchers are wrong um, and I'm right. I, I, I wrote it to open the conversation um, a little bit because Unfortunately, the, the topic on or the, the conversation on heart disease is very myopic. It's very mm -hmm. cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. It's very diet, diet, diet. And I think that diet plays a role, but it is, you know, uh, not even close to being the number one thing that I think causes heart disease. Um, and, uh, and so, so it, to me, we have to get a much broader assessment, you know, and it's, and it's incredibly naive and short-sighted to just take a cholesterol panel and say, oh, your cholesterol is high, you have higher risk. Um, and it, A, you know, again, back to the complex ecosystem that is a human body, there's no way that one thing could ever be the only cause of a disease um, uh, or, or, the, or the reason you're healthy or not healthy. That's just um, naive, uh, I think. But so we have to get a, a much broader assessment. And so in the book, you know, people will find that there's a theme for me and that most of our health issues are the result of uh, being, uh, having poor metabolic health, um, not being metabolic, metabolically flexible, which does have a lot to do with diet, um, but not everything to do with diet. Um, there's also um, high inflammation or oxidative stress, um, which can be toxin exposure, stress, all kinds of things. Um, and then there's um, an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system, which is probably the one that's most overlooked. And so that is um, stress in general. Like when we think of a stress response or how stressed we are, that um, 
we, we see imbalances in our autonomic nervous system. And so we need to, we need to be looking at things that help us assess all three of those and then, and then combine those and assess our overall risk of something. And so with blood work, most of those you can do with blood work, um, but you can get pretty, blood work can get pretty expansive um, if you want to look at everything. So, you know, I'll give people, uh, I think probably the, the best, uh, the best test for each of those three imbalances uh, that I think could give you an idea. So for metabolic health is, is a fasting insulin. Um, you probably need a blood sugar too, but in general, you can get a lot from a fasting insulin if you know how to in interpret that, or if you're working with a doctor that knows how to interpret that. Um, with uh, For oxidative stress or for inflammation, you know, if I was to do one test, it'd probably just be a, an HSCRP um, which is just a measure of general inflammation in the body. Um, and then the, the best test for imbalance in our autonomic nervous system would be heart rate variability. So people, um, mm -hmm. need to be tracking that. Um, I think it's a, it's a useful number to be tracking. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so those three things can give you, you know, that's probably the simplest way I could put it as far as what to track. Cause there's a million other blood tests you could take, um, and you can go and in, get into the weeds with all that and, and what they mean and all this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I think that those are, you know, the, the top three things that I would want to see if I, if I only had to choose three, uh, those would be them. I, I like that. That, that is pretty different than what you generally hear really. Um, and let's talk a little bit about stress and how that affects the heart. Cause I, I know that like at this point in time, for whatever reason, my cortisol is just really high and I've taken three different tests to test it. And all three times, I don't know what the heck, I mean, I, I, th I thought I was doing everything right. You know, it's like, why is my cortisol? So, you know, and what, what relationship is it to the heart when you, when you are stressed, like what yeah. does it specifically do to the heart? Yeah. So there are, there are multiple times in the book where I remind people that, um, my definition of health is the ability to adapt to a situation. Okay. So take, take metabolic flexibility, for example, if you're eating in a way that um, makes you entirely dependent on glucose and you can't burn any other fuel sources, you've lost the ability to adapt to adapt to different fuel sources. And that's not healthy. Um, so it's the same thing with, with stress. Um, if you're, so we have, you know, your autonomic nervous system is a system in your body that, that, um, uh, interprets your environment through your senses and tells your body if you're in a safe or threatening environment. And so based on whichever signals you're getting, your body will react accordingly. And so um, our stress response is designed to, to only be turned on when there's actually a life-threatening situation happening. And humans with our big brains are the only species on the planet that can think their way into a stress response. Um, right, we can, we can see something happen to somebody else a million miles away and get stressed that it's going to happen to us. Or we can have something stressful happen to us instead of, and instead of shutting off that stress response, you know, after it's over, we think about it for a month, you know? And, and so there's lots of things like that in our lives today. I will call them unnatural stressors um, that, um, that kind of drive us into this constant stress response, this constant state of stress. And, and this is the hardest thing you know, to, to get a hold of. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's easy. Um, it's hard for me, uh, as people will find out as I read my book. Um, 
it, it's, it's my number one struggle uh, because it's not easy with the world that we live in, you know, um, but it's important to understand it. And it's important, it's important to understand what types of stresses in your life are the most detrimental so you can minimize those. Um, but when we get this imbalance in our autonomic nervous system, we can get stuck in this stress state. Um, and this, um, this comes from, you know, the evolution of reptiles to mammals. Um, and I talk about that early in the book and, and how this stress response developed and then went awry in, in humans, I think. Uh, and, or at least our environment went awry. The stress response is normal. It's what it should be, but it's just operating in, a, in an environment that's not normal for it. And so we can get stuck in the stress response and that can cause a lot of issues. Um, because if you think about it, if your body is constantly but incorrectly thinking that you are in a life-threatening situation, um, it's always thinking about getting away from that. It's fight or flight, so to speak, as people have heard. Um, and so you're thinking about getting away from a threat. You're not thinking about sleeping or digesting or detoxifying or procreating or anything like that. And so people who get stuck in the stress response can have all kinds of symptoms anywhere in the body. Anything from, you know, it's, so you can have insomnia, you could have sexual dysfunction, you could have digestive issues, you could have all kinds of stuff because those systems are shut down. Your body's not getting the signal to upregulate those things. You've lost the ability to be flexible enough to respond to a situation. And so the problem with that is that we can get stuck in that stress response so much that we, we lose the ability to go back and forth. And then acute stresses can have pretty detrimental effects to us. Um, if we're not, if we're not quite balanced. And so um, that's why heart rate variability is such an important marker to track because it's the number one measure of how balanced we are in our autonomic nervous system. Um, and so we just have to be, we need to, I think, pay much more attention to um, those things in our lives that are the detrimental types of stresses and what we can do to mitigate them because we can't always get rid of all the stresses. Um, but it's, it's about our perception of stress. Um, it's about um, stresses that are more uh, stresses that make us feel like we're out of control of a situation. Those are the, the most detrimental because um, research shows that stresses that are like, you know, uh, I'm really busy or I'm in really high demand, but I like it. Those aren't detrimental, but the stresses that are in our lives that we feel like our, our, our life is out of control or we can't control that stressor, then those are the detrimental ones. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge topic that is very um, underutilized um, and not discussed as much as it should be. Um, and the more and more I read, the more and more I think that this is the, this is the driving force in, in heart disease um, is, is this imbalance in our autonomic nervous system because the heart has this um, special connection to our emotional state which is why we say things unconsciously like, I love you with all my heart, not I love you with all my spleen or something. <laughs> um, or it's why we say I gave it all my heart. You know, um, The gut is also very connected to our emotional state, which is why I have a gut feeling about things. You know, mm. um, We say that stuff kind of unconsciously, but there's a reason we do. Um, but there are, there, are, um, there are many, many neuronal like nerve connections between the heart and the brain, but most of them are communicating from the heart to the brain, like 90% of them, which means that the brain is interpreting our emotional state from our heart. And so how we're feeling about something 
is, is the signal, like how our heart feels about something is the signal to our brain. Are we in a safe or threatening, threatening environment? Um, one of the signals. Um, and so the state of this, our emotional state is incredibly linked to this. And that, that negative feedback can have a detrimental effect on the signals that the heart gets um, to have a stress response. Um, and one of those I, I think is, is uh, a certain type of heart attack that we see um, that I explained in the book, but, um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something that needs to be talked about more for sure. Uh, yes. And, and you brought up heart rate variability. Can mm-hmm. you, I think probably most people have no clue what that is. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't either until I got this aura ring. I did yeah. not know what that meant. I hope I didn't flip anybody off when I just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but could you explain what that actually is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way I explain it to people is, um, so like if they were to sit down and like take their pulse on their wrist right now, um, and if they really kind of paid attention to it and, and focused and took a deep breath in, like a slow, deep breath in, they would feel their pulse quicken um, just slightly. And then if they took a slow breath out, the breath or the, the pulse would get slower. Okay. And so the difference between the fastest it gets when you take a breath in and the slowest it gets when you take a breath out is the heart rate variability. Um, and you're not going to get a number of, uh, like your heart rate variability number is not the difference. You know, it's not like you're going to get a number that shows that exact difference. It's all these calculations that, that come out and gives you this score. Um, but it's based on that. And so when you breathe in, you're giving a sympathetic, you're, you're increasing sympathetic response, um, your stress response. Uh, and when you breathe out, you're giving parasympathetic and non-stress response. And so, you know, the ability of your heart to go back and forth between the two is your heart rate variability. It's your, it's your ability to adapt to different situations. Now, if you have a high heart rate variability, then you're adapting very well. You can go back and forth quite broadly. Whereas if you have a very low heart rate variability, then that, that uh, um, you're not able to adapt as much. You're kind of stuck in one spot, right? In, in a very, in, or stuck in a narrow spot here. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's what heart rate variability is. Um, and there's all different types of, uh, ways to measure it. Um, like if you read the research on them, they use all these different numbers and all these different acronyms for things and, and all this stuff. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you can get things like the aura ring or, or elite HRV, or there's, there's all kinds of devices you can use that will measure it on you and you can track it. But the idea is to have your heart rate variability as, as high as possible. They say that 20 to hundred is normal, which is a wide range. So you don't want to say, oh, my heart rate variability is, is 40 and there's is 80. Uh, I need to get it to 80. It's like, no, you don't compare it to others. You find what your baseline is and you work to improve it from there. Um, and you'll, you'll be able to see, you know, based on what happens in your life and, and, and things, what, what type of things improve it, what types of things, you know, uh, make it go down. So, um, yeah, I can tell you, I can tell you what worked, what yeah. affects me. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I usually my variability is pretty much all to optimal, except for when I have a drink. Mm-hmm. That's and then all of a sudden it's like, uh, be cautious, you know, pay attention. Yeah. You, your recovery is not going to be as good today. Right. I'm like, oopsie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Um, hmm. 
Yeah, something to check into. Mm. Yeah, Alcohol definitely. and the effect on the heart, because yeah. that is the only thing really, even when I've felt really stressed out or, or, you know, had to deal with something that I considered uh, traumatic, I didn't see any really major issues with my heart variability, but alcohol every single time. Yeah, I've time. definitely seen, there's one study out there that, um, I forget what they had them, it was, they compared them having like a fruit juice drink and a, um, I think it was, it was a, it was a drink that was high in fat. I think it was heavy cream or something like that, or mm-hmm. just something like that. And, um, and they definitely found that the fruit juice drink, um, stimulated or, or decreased heart rate variability, um, in those, in those people, uh, and that the higher fat one definitely kept it normal and that kind of stuff. So, um, now that's a very processed carbohydrate. I'm not going to say that all carbohydrates are evil. That's fruit juice, which is a terrible thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, there's definitely th- those types of foods can do that. So it's not surprising that alcohol would do that for you. Um, because I mean, it's a toxin, it's a neurotoxin. Um, it's hard on your liver, but it's, uh, but that's interesting. Yeah. I never, I hadn't heard anybody say that yet. Yeah, it, it definitely. I'm telling you every time like clock, clockwork, I could guarantee you when I check it the next morning, bam, <laughs> Yeah, there it is. need to take it easy today and recover. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I didn't do anything. I had a drink <laughs> bad. So that tells you how bad alcohol is, kids. Don't drink it. No. <laughs> That's my little advertisement. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um since we kind of touched a little bit on fat. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the awful, horrible, horrible saturated fat and red meat and what that yeah. does to the heart. Terrible stuff. Tell us how it bad does. saturated fat is for us. It's just the best thing for us as far as all right. And, and I think that, you know, we humans, um, we like to polarize things. We like to say good or bad, black and white, you know, um, it has to be that, that, uh, binary for us. And, uh, it's not that way. It never is like, you need unsaturated fat to be healthy. You need saturated fat to be healthy. The issue is when the ratios get out of hand. Uh, and that's what we have seen happen in, with the introduction of, um, vegetable oils, we see the unsaturated fat get way out of hand um, in a type of food that is extremely processed. And so if you look at, you know, steak, you look at red meat, um, it has unsaturated fat and it also has saturated fat and it's in the right ratios. And that's what matters. Um, And so, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that one is, is worse than the other. You know, I can, I could tell you that when, when we burn saturated fat for fuel, it does very favorable things to our mitochondria um, and to our satiety mechanisms and to um, our, our fat cells that leads to you know, insulin sensitivity in our body. Um, and unsaturated fat seems to do the opposite. However, we need unsaturated fat to function. Um, and so we, it, it's really about the ratios. If we start getting too much unsaturated fat, that's, that's, when, the, that's when the issue happens. Um, so the moral of that story is eat whole foods, eat, um, eat fats that come in whole foods. And if you do that, you're going to be getting the right ratios. Stop eating industrially processed oils. Um, I would even, I would even caution against the, the, the olive oils and the avocado oils. Those are processed foods. Technically, um, they're less processed than vegetable oils, but they're not whole foods. If you want olive oil, eat an olive, you know, Um, but yeah, because I think that, you know, 
I just read a book that totally debunked the whole myth of, of nature or whatever, but I'm going to say it, nature, nature got it right, you know, or at least, mm. at least ma- ma- nature's not this cognitive being, you know, it's not this thing that's making decisions, but it's, uh, it's what our bodies are most used to throughout the years of evolution. Um, and, uh, and so I think that sticking to those things that are more normal, um, uh, to our bodies, it's going to be our best bet because we're never going to understand, um, you know, all the, the complex mechanisms of using saturated fat and unsaturated fat and all these things. So the, our best bet is to eat whole foods and an animal food is a whole food. It's the absolutely. best whole food there is, you know, I, I agree. <laughs> I so, absolutely agree. So there's, I mean, it just doesn't make sense that saturated fat causes heart disease. It just, um, you know, humans have been eating that for millions of years. Um, and heart diseases, and especially in the levels that we see it today, is a very new thing. So that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, because you can get into, like I said, you can get into the weeds with all the research and everything. And, and we talked about that. Um, but ultimately, sometimes you have to step back and say, you know, where's the common sense? Um, it, because if if you if the common sense totally, um, like if I'm a scientist and I'm trying to test something. I'm trying to test if saturated fat or unsaturated fat is better or something. Um, and I don't have a good context of the common sense behind the argument. And I'm just so focused on the biochemistry down in there. I can get lost, you know, mm-hmm. um, and trying to understand things that we may never understand um, as far as the body goes. Um, so you have to make sure that, or I think that scientists should make sure that we, we step back and they make sure they have a good context for why they're doing the research and does their research question make sense in in light of of human history and evolution and um and, and everything like that you know because if they're not then we get lost which is why we have all these these pharmaceutical companies and people looking at very distinct me- mechanisms of things like that um not to say that pharmaceuticals are bad like the, you know they they can be useful in, in in instances um but yeah so from a very high perspective to a very biochemical perspective saturated fat is the best thing for us, but it's not black and white. You have to you know, eat in the right ratios, eat whole foods. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And I never fully understood that until I started really getting into keto and then more into carnivore. And then I, I now I fully get what you mean when you say that, that is incredibly important. Yeah. yeah and I think that, so like in my book, I don't really you know, I make a case for animal foods, definitely. Um, and I, and I, I've done carnivore diets and I, um, and I've done, um, you know, paleo type diets and all types of things. My main goal in the book was just to, um, to, to provide the evidence that animal foods do not cause heart disease, because that's, that's the most important thing to me, because they're incredibly important food that, you know, I don't think everybody should, you know, eat carnivore or whatever, if they want to, that's great. That's fine. Um, but my main goal is to get animal foods back on the heart healthy menu because they're an incredibly important, important food for getting enough nutrients, uh, especially protein as we age. Um, and there's just no, there's no evidence that they cause heart disease. It's just, it's a shame that that stigma is there. I agree. And, and I find that really frustrating now that my eyes have been open too, because I used to believe that too, but I mean, nature, again, like what you said, why would nature give us something that is going to be so, you know, in, in an animal, why, 
and, and we've been eating it forever and our animals, wolves and et cetera, have been eating that forever, the other carnivores. I mean, we, of course, omnivores, but you know, it makes no sense to me. It just yeah. doesn't, that, that an animal food would be bad for us. I right. don't get that. Uh, can you touch on why cancer of the heart is like pretty much non-existent? Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah, that's a that's a hard thing to just touch on. Okay. But but, uh, <laughs> I, but I can tell I can tell people I can spark their interest at least, um, because, I mean, you don't think about it too much, but it is incredibly rare. You don't hear about can- heart cancer too often, but it does happen. Um, and most of the time when it does happen though, it's because of metastasis from another place. So mm. heart cancer is rare, but what's even more rare is a, it's a primary tumor happening at the heart, like the, mm. the cancer starting at the heart. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, one is that the heart has a preference for ketones. Um, and if you've read anything about, you know, Thomas Seafree, the metabolic theory of cancer and all that kind of stuff, um, and Otto Warburg, um, you know that you know, cancer is, or at least what we observe in cancer is that the body goes from oxidative phosphorylation to some type of fermentation, um, lactic acid fermentation or whatever. Um, and ketones uh, are a non-fermentable fuel, uh, which means that they, they have to be used through oxidative phosphorylation. So if we want to encourage our body to stay away from this fermentation that tends to happen in cancer, then we provide it with ketones. And the heart has, seems to have um, this preference for ketones, even in the presence of glucose. Most of the body will burn the glucose first. That's oxidative priority. Um, but the heart will choose the ketones if they're present, um, which is interesting, and, and the fatty acids too. Um, and so th- that's one reason, um, I think. The other reason is that um, it has to do with, with structured water again, which I talked about in the arteries. That's actually what's... Um, so if you, if you were to like feel the tissue of your forearm, you know, we're told that we're 70% water, but I don't feel like a waterbed. I don't slosh around like, like a waterbed or a water balloon, you know, um, it's because all the water in my cells, um, are in, in this structured water state, which is more like a gel state. It's kind of between solid and liquid. That's why it's called the fourth phase of water. Um, and so we're primarily water, but in a gel state. And so it has to do why we, why we don't get um, cancer in the heart is because it has certain mechanisms and certain features, like the heart has one of the strongest electromagnetic fields of any organ in the body, um, which is another way that we can help structure water and cells. Um, but, you know, there is a theory of cancer that, that it, it happens when we get a breakdown of the structured water in our cells, when that water can't become structured. So ketones play a role in keeping that water structured. The electromagnetic field play a role in keeping that water structured. Um, and so those things are um, unique characteristics of the heart um, that keep it from getting cancer um, in most cases. It still happens, but it's extremely rare. Like so rare that, you know, there's there's one uh, doctor in the country who's known for, you know, uh, um, like operating on, on heart tumors. Uh, and he, even he only gets like 12 cases a year. Um, like he, it's just not, not like everybody that gets heart cancer 
it's like sent to him and, you know, or primary heart cancer. And so like, and even he only gets an average of 12 cases a year. So it's just really rare. And I think explained, it's explained by these unique characteristics of the heart. Um, it, you know, without going way more in depth and explaining everything like that, that that's kind of the, the, the reasons are that it's preference for ketones and, and electromagnetic field that the heart gives off. That, that is really cool. And I've never really thought about that until I started reading what, what you're talking about heart cancer. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even, well, it, because it's not really a thing, I guess that's yeah. why we never hear about it. Cause it's not. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship of the vagus nerve and the heart. Mm -hmm. Like uh, there's like a lot of talk right now out there about the vagus nerve and how to, you know, help it do its thing and to relax you and the, you know, your balance of your systems, the nervous system and all that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that goes back to the autonomic nervous system. Like the vagus nerve is the nerve that um, communicates the the autonomic nervous system signaling to the body, um, like to the organs pretty much. Um, And so, uh, yeah, the, the heart is, is highly innervated by the vagus nerve. Um, and it, it used to be thought that the, um, the only place that the, the heart got signal from the nerve was the nodes that control the heartbeat, you know, the AB node and the, uh, and the um, uh, SV node. And, um, but that's not true. The, actually, the, the vagus nerve actually can, um, it affects the entire, like all the muscle cells of the heart. It, it reaches all of them. Um, and that was a new study I, I came across the, um, that I talk about in the book. Um, so our entire heart is affected by that, which means that, you know, wherever that emotion is felt is being communicated back to the heart. Um, Cause we think of this brain being as the center of control, right. And telling the body what to do. But in reality, it's just, it's just reacting on, on what the body is feeling. Um, so like if your gut is super inflamed uh, and you have leaky gut and it's really damaged, that's a pretty, that's a reason for the, the vagus nerve from the gut to be communicating to your brain we're in a stressful situation, you know? Uh, and if the heart is feeling, you know, these negative emotions and it's really stressed or strained, that's a reason for it to communicate to the brain. We're in this stressful situation. And so those things, um, are going to be keeping your body in that heightened stress state. Um, and all this is communicated through the vagus nerve. And, um, so if we want to, you know, give the body signals that we're in a safe space where we're safe and we want to, you know, work on our emotional state, um, in various ways, heal the gut, lots of different things that we could do. Um, but, uh, curiously, um, there are actually studies that suggest that different, um, plant toxins can actually travel via the vagus nerve, um, and, and consequently damage it, um, damage that communication Mm -hmm. between the vagus nerve and organs, um, different organs. So, um, and this, these were, these were plant toxins that most humans don't usually eat. So I can't say that, you know, the ones that humans often eat, um, are doing this. These were like, you know, beans that people don't really eat. Like they're not edible beans, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't mean they're not in lesser amounts than the beans that people do eat. So, um, just interesting things about the vagus nerve, but, uh, but the vagus nerve itself, you know, like, so in reptiles, there was like this one pathway of the vagus nerve. Um, and it was called um, the dorsal motor nucleus. Um, and so in reptiles, they're cold-blooded. And so in order for mammals to evolve from reptiles, 
um, we had to get a change in that vagus nerve because or mammals are way more metabolically active. They're warm blooded um, because they're creating this heat. They're way more active. If you think about reptiles versus mammals, mammals can run really fast. And they're, they're going all around and mammals or reptiles are pretty slow. Um, uh, and so in order for that to happen, and so like when a, when a reptile gets a stress response, it can literally shut down its body, shut down organs temporarily, um, play dead, so to speak, um, and, uh, and still survive because of their slow metabolism and their slow um, movements and things like that. They're cold blooded, you know, whereas mammals can't afford to do that. They have to keep metabolically active to keep our body heat up, mm. um, to keep our organs, which are incredibly demanding for energy. Um, they have to maintain that, that high metabolism. And so a, an organ shutdown is not possible. So when, when a reptile has a, a stress response that's so overwhelming, it can literally just shut down. And if it survives the situation, it'll come back, right? If, if mammals did that, then they would likely die. So we had to evolve a different stress response. And so the vagus nerve actually split into two different pathways. There was still a dorsal motor nucleus, but now there's a new nucleus ambiguous. Um, and that allows for mammals to have a stress response without shutting down. Um, however, I don't think evolution was accounting for the very quick change in lifestyle that humans encountered, um, which was, I think was civilization that has led us to these unnatural stressors. And so there is still situations where, you know, that nucleus ambiguous can get kind of shut down. And that's, that, that's the autonomic nervous system imbalance that I'm talking about. That's where we're turning off the nucleus ambiguous. It's not getting enough attention. And we almost default back to that dorsal motor nucleus. And that um, can have major consequences if a acute stressor forces that too much. And one of the ones I think that can happen is an infarction um, of some sort or a, a heart attack um, a heart attack that's not an infarction, a heart attack that uh, with no blockage whatsoever, because those do occur. Um, and I explain what I think happens in those situations in the book. Um, but the, the vagus nerve, and, and again, looking at the history of it, is incredibly telling for what we're seeing, you know, in, in modern day human uh, disease patterns and things like that. So um, all incredibly fascinating to me. It is. It's, it's sad, but it is fascinating yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. Okay, so kind of on that line, can somebody actually die from a broken heart? Uh, I believe so, yes. It could be, be a very large contributing factor. Um, I think that someone would have to already be pretty imbalanced in their autonomic nervous mm -hmm. system. Um, but yes, that... Um, that acute stress, uh, it's called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy, um, broken heart syndrome pretty much. Um, and, and again, it's because of this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system that is set off by an acute stress response, which is a broken heart, having your heart broken. Um, and that could be loss of a loved one. It could be a breakup. It could be whatever. Um, and, but we definitely observe this in medicine. Uh, we see it um, a lot enough that it has a name, you know, uh, wow. and, uh, and so, so, which to me suggests that, you know, in Western medicine, they do acknowledge that the emotional state has an effect on the heart. Um, but they just haven't looked as far into it as I think that they should have, um, or even attributed to, and there's this huge distraction of cholesterol and LDL, 
that no one's really looking at the true underlying causes of why heart disease, heart attacks, heart failure, all that stuff happens. Um, and, and, uh, and one of those, one of those, you know, in their face evidences is a broken heart syndrome. It's like, Hey, look at this, look at the effect that the emotional state has on the heart. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we look at this a little more? Shouldn't we, um, shouldn't there be public service announcements about, about that stuff rather than just cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. Um, shouldn't we yeah. be developing, you know, I don't know if they'd be good things, but maybe there's, maybe there's uh, medical devices or, or things that could be developed that could help people, you know, retain uh, vagal tone, vagus nerve health, you know, um, which could be helpful in the short term for someone who's acutely, you know, at risk for that type of thing, but I would want them to fix it in other ways down the road, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, uh, someone, people have died of broken heart syndrome for sure. Well, I mean, if you look at like the older couples who have been together 50, 60, whatever years, and then one passes and then like just a very short time after the other one passes to me, mm -hmm. that's kind of, kind of along those lines, you know, like when yeah. you have that, you know, major loss when it's been there for so long and it causes that little bit to tip you over, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and I guess it's not a little bit, that's a big thing. <laughs> yeah. And just even another example of, uh, of how connected our heart is to our emotional state, it almost becomes ingrained in our heart over our lifespan because um, the, uh, there's really fascinating case studies and research on people who've gotten heart transplants and studying the personalities of people who received the transplants versus the people who were the, the donors. And they've observed um, you know, um, uh, personality traits that have changed in the people who received the hearts and they are like the people who donated the heart. Um, it wasn't like a complete personality change, but like certain things that the person never acted like before, all of a sudden they did. Um, yeah. It's just really, really interesting stuff um, that, that again shows how connected our heart is to our emotional state and how important it is to, to uh, have a healthy emotional state. Uh, I, I totally agree with that because I'm feeling that <laughs> and I've been mm -hmm. trying to deal with that. And I, I've yeah. done some, you know, research on the, the vagus nerve and vagal tone and uh, the breathing exercises to kind of help with that. And I do that at mm -hmm. night, like when I'm getting ready to go to sleep, I try to do just some breathing to kind of chill myself out a little bit. Exactly. And, and uh, I, does it work or not? I, I, I don't know if it's worked <laughs> or not. I don't know, but you know, I, I, I'm trying, I'm trying. Yeah, now. for sure. Okay, let me check. Ooh, okay, let's let me kind of wrap some of this up. Okay, what is a real heart healthy diet and lifestyle? What do you consider the the way you think would make the most difference as far as your heart goes and health? Yeah, um, as far as diet goes, eat in a way that creates metabolic flexibility. So, um, to me, that's centering the diet around animal foods. Um, the most whole food thing I think there is, uh, and then, uh, and eating whole foods in general, you know, so I, I don't, I think that in some cases it's important for people to, to care about plant toxins and things like that. Um, and, and some, for some people, it's a difference between health and not health. Um, but in general, I just think we should prioritize animal foods, um, because they're the most nutrient dense, they're whole foods. Uh, and then uh, make sure the other foods you're eating in addition to those are also whole foods and nothing too processed. If you do that, you're going to retain metabolic flexibility. Um, it, we also need to be conscious of inflammation and oxidative stress. 
Um, and those things are created by psychological stress. They're created by toxins in our environment. So looking into your environment and, and seeing where the toxins are coming from. So it could be from the water you're drinking, the food you're eating, the cleaning supplies you use, the, the personal care products you use, the air you're breathing, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so being, paying attention to that kind of stuff um, and detoxifying your environment as much as possible. And then, um, uh, and, and, and a healthy diet and the right type of whole food diet is going to help with that stuff as well. Um, um, help decrease the inflammation and oxidative stress that's contributed there as well. Um, and then, you know, what we've talked about a lot is, is maintain balance in your autonomic nervous system, um, which there's, there's many, many, many ways to do that. It could be anything from meditation to yoga, to, you know, nature, to infrared sauna, to just different perspectives on stress, to, um, you know, becoming, you know, finding peace with things that stress you out. It, it could be, there's so many different strategies that people can use, um, which is why I think tracking heart rate variability is so important because then you can, you can find what works for you um, and, and keep doing that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the heart because it's so important. And hey, y'all, I'll have a link to his book below. Be sure to get it because it's really good, full of it. I mean, look, it's a it's a pretty thick book there. He's got lots of information, lots of lots of really very, very interesting stuff that you just don't don't really hear about mainstream. So be sure to check that out. And while you're here, subscribe to my channel and go follow Dr. Hussey. I will have everything below again. So Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Bye. Bye.